America is corrupted and everybody knows it. Vested interests have bent government powers to serve themselves, not the citizens with dizzying results. Egregious Supreme Court rulings, revolving doors, cosy deals between the state and the private sector, 40 years of financial meltdowns. This isn't a case of bad apples lining individual pockets. It's the widespread, standard practice of sophisticated networks spanning political and national boundaries, and it's strangling our democracy. Welcome to Afterwords. I'm Luke Harding, author and Guardian foreign correspondent, here today talking with Sarah Chase, former NPR journalist and international corruption expert. Her recent book, Everybody Knows, Corruption in America, exposes an astonishing web of networks between politicians, business people, and other high-profile figures. In today's show, we're going to be discussing the impacts of America's rigged system, its roots, and how we can challenge it individually, collectively, and politically. One of the many things which delighted me about this book is just the notion that corruption is not a faraway problem of bad guys in countries about which we know little or or nothing. It's actually a problem on our doorstep, which kind of affects and corrodes our society, our politics, our business, our lawmaking. And these are all things which Sarah explores. So Sarah, just to begin with, on your stupendously good book, why did you write it? What was the point? What were you trying to achieve? <laughs> oh, you know, I wrote it exactly to drive home the point that you just made, which is corruption. And I would say, isn't just on our doorstep. It's right here at home. It's right inside the house. And this had started to really dawn on me several years ago, 2014, 2015, as I was writing my last book, whose focus was indeed on the developing world. But I was seeing the patterns that I had identified there at home. And I had an epilogue saying, basically, guys, we're on this spectrum. And my contention then was that systemic corruption drives its victims to extremes. That book came out in 2015, and I didn't think the extreme was going to happen as quickly as it did. But in some ways, I would say that some of the support for Brexit and some of the support for Donald Trump was driven by the very same motivations that drove my neighbors in Afghanistan or people in northern Nigeria to throw their support with violent extremists. Frankly, it's a different version of an extreme reaction. In particular, in 2016, even before the U.S. election, a Supreme Court ruling came down in a corruption case that any ordinary citizen of the United Kingdom or the United States would call a slam dunk case of corruption. You know, it was a governor who had been given, you know, 150 pounds worth of baubles, you know, I mean, a Rolex watch and payment for his, you know, the price of his daughter's wedding and rides. It was tacky, tacky stuff, wasn't it? Well, it, it was, Sarah, it, was it was tacky stuff, but ask anyone if they wouldn't like to have 150,000 pounds. You know, I mean, it's a significant amount of money for a regular person. But it was obviously corrupt, you know, given by some also quite tacky 
pharmaceutical executive who actually had been a tobacco executive. Now he's trying to peddle tobacco-based pills as the cure to everything. A snake oil vendor, right? Convicted. Unanimous jury of his peers, right? Upheld on appeal. The Supreme Court not only overturned that conviction, and this is what's important, it overturned it unanimously. On the radio that I listened to that evening, a panel of experts selected to span the political spectrum unanimously agreed with that Supreme Court ruling. That's what I found so dangerous. And in a way that I find even more dangerous than some of the extreme behavior of Trump, it's the fact that elites across the political spectrum in the United States are really wedded to what I consider to be essentially a corrupt business model. And that is to say that it's really about networks, just like the kinds of networks that you have isolated and described operating in Russia, those same intersections of public officials, oligarchs, if you will. I mean, I want to say business magnates, right? Yeah. Sometimes out and out criminals woven together. It's not to say just like in Russia, they're turbulent. There are rivalries internally and all, and, and, and all of that. They're not well-oiled machines, but they are networks that are fundamentally rigging the system to help them continue maximizing their own wealth. I mean, it's not a fully functioning democracy on Scandinavian lines, is it? I mean, how would you characterize it? A kleptocratic apparent democracy. The appearances are fairly good. I think that the citizens largely believe it's a democracy, although even that is not very clear. Democracy means what? It means every citizen has equal rights, right? It also means the wisdom of the crowd is, on average and over time, the best decision-making process. So a real democracy has to abide by those two principles. Well, first of all, clearly, every citizen does not have equal political rights. Secondly, the Supreme Court is nine elite individuals. Those nine elite individuals also don't seem to understand the meaning of the word corruption. So let's set that aside. But the Supreme Court, nine elite individuals are deciding a great deal of U.S. policy. There's another body that decides a great deal of U.S. and U.K. policy, too. It's called the central bank. In our case, that means the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, as we speak, is funneling approximately or has funneled approximately $6 trillion of public money not into cities and states that are desperately trying to help battle the COVID crisis, that are currently laying off police officers and teachers because their budgets are so strapped and because they can't access cheap loans. Instead, this $6 trillion is going directly into the purchase of corporate bonds on Wall Street, basically to keeping afloat huge corporations and private investors who have been taking on completely, I want to say, irresponsible level of debt since 2008. 
That's where $6 trillion of public money is going. And not only does, is there no decision-making process around that, most American citizens don't even know that. Is that a democracy, Luke? Yeah, yeah. well, okay, your persuasive powers are uh, beginning to tell. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned money. One of the delightful things about your book is that you go way back to where money was first invented by the Greeks, right, about quite a few thousand years ago. And I love the backstory. I love the, the way you contextualize all this. And the fact that these baleful themes that we've been talking about, whether it's political corruption or, or financial corruption and so on, they're nothing new. I mean, you, you have several chapters on what you call the Gilded Age. Maybe you could explain that and why you've decided to go back to tell the story. Thank you very much for asking that, because that is one of the things that makes Everybody Knows different, I think, from a number of other books that fortunately are hitting our bookstores, examining this crisis that we're in, this sort of kleptocratic crisis that the world is gripped by. I do not just go back to the Greeks, but I go back to mythology. And I do that because I think that there is some incredible wisdom stored in those sacred stories that we have been neglecting of late in our science-obsessed society. There, the myth is the myth of Midas. There was a Midas, and he lived basically when and where money was invented in ancient Greece or in the ancient Greek world. And so that gives that myth of the king who wanted everything he touched to turn to gold and the god gave him his wish. You know, that gives it a deeper... And then he turns his daughter to gold. That, well, that's, that's right. That's, that's, that's the That's exactly right. Yeah. And it gives it a deeper resonance. So those two points, number one, that's a myth about money. It's about this new revolution called money. So we have to understand that that money is different from other ways of understanding and and having wealth or having well-being. Secondly, the daughter. So what that myth tells us is that people who are addicted to amassing more and more money will convert everything of intrinsic, irreplaceable value into, okay, in the myth, it's gold. He turns his daughter into a lump of metal. In our day, it's not even gold. It's zeros in bank accounts. But it is real values that are being converted in this race for zeros. It's the land, what's on the land, what's under the land. It's our precious relationships like our own children. It's human creativity and human labor. I mean, all of it. And the point is that in our society, in the US certainly, and I think also to a great degree in the United Kingdom, we have begun using money as a yardstick to measure our social worth. It's no longer something that we want or need in order to fulfill our reasonable needs for a healthy and happy life. It's now something we compete over. It's no longer about how much do we need to put our children through school. It's really about, I need to one-up Luke, and then Luke needs to one-up me. And then, you know, and of course, we're not battling over billions, but some people are. The point to understand is this is a race with no finish line. And people who are in that race, who are, if you want to say, who test positive for the Midas disease... If we put our society in their hands, they will destroy it. Yeah. So that's the point of the money in ancient Greece. And now the 19th century, because that's really important too. When people who have the Midas disease 
get their hands on society, what they do is they weave networks, exactly the kind of networks that you have investigated in Russia. These networks are transnational. They may be yours, the one you're looking at may be anchored in Moscow. It landed grappling irons, you know, deep into the heart of the United States. Yeah, and it's facilitated by lawyers in London, bankers in New York, and so on. Exactly. That's exactly right. The networks are transnational. And what these networks do is they interweave, deliberately interweave, business magnates with government officials, with out-and-out criminals. That makes them incredibly resilient and incredibly capable because look at the different levers that they can manipulate. They can manipulate the levers of power. They can manipulate the spigot of money. They can manipulate all of the back channels that criminals use to cross borders and whatnot. And so they're a very formidable enemy, if you will. So I wanted to see when was the last time that the world was in the grip of networks like this? And I found, as you say, the Gilded Age. Now, pardon me, but I know this is inaccurate. But I'm actually expanding the borders of the Gilded Age. I would say that it's the period really running from roughly 1870 all the way across into the mid-1930s. During that period, what's so stunning to me is the world was in the grip of these networks, not only under both or various political parties, So it's not only Republicans and Democrats in the United States and Tories and Labour in England, it's under different political systems. So we've got the German Empire, we've got Republican France, we've got the British constitutional monarchy, we've got the United States Federal Republic, and yet the syndrome is almost identical in each of those countries. That's just what we're experiencing now, isn't it? I'm just sort of curious, when do you think was an era, I'll give you 10 years, of good governance in the US? If you could pick 10 years, what would they be? So what I would say is I'll give you 40 years. Okay. And I'd say they start approximately 1935 and last until approximately 1980. That's even 45 years. In that period, you had, I'm not saying good, but you had much better, much higher standards of integrity in government. And you also had a period of expanding rights of the citizens as against the kleptocratic networks, if you will. And in that, I include civil rights for minorities. I include consumers' rights against corporate abuse. I include environmental protection. So the networks and their business model were being at least somewhat constrained. All of those efforts were a fight. Those fights could win during those 45 years. And so that was the other reason I really wanted to look at the Gilded Age, was to almost ask the follow-on question that that if I were you, I would ask me and that I did ask myself, okay, what explains the the switch? So that was going to be my question, because a lot of a lot of sort of thought has been devoted into the causes of Trumpism and Brexitism or whatever, and post 2008 disillusionment, austerity in this country and so on. But you go back much earlier. So are we talking about Reaganite economics, deregulation, monetarism, Milton Friedman? I mean, who do we blame? Okay, let me give you that switch. And then let me come back, circle back to the earlier switch. So for that switch, then it starts to switch back in approximately 1980 is where I see it. 
Yeah. And I would put that down to two colliding factors. One is a plan. Corrupt networks don't take being shunted out of power lying down, right? They have counter moves. <laughs> and so starting as early as the 1970s, you start to see those plans starting to come together. For example, someone who was nominated for the Supreme Court here, his name is Robert Bork, began an all-out assault on anti-monopoly enforcement. Not so much on the legislation itself, but how the legislation was implemented. This was a giant stroke against corrupt networks, was to break up their giant business conglomerates. So he realized, you know, we need to end anti-monopoly. That was one example. But much bigger was the example, yes, you're right, it's largely the Reagan network, but another gentleman who made it onto the Supreme Court, who really laid out a blueprint for how to regain power for the wealth maximizers. And what he said was, we have to develop a whole ecosystem of think tanks, changing the culture, you know, changing, demeaning the New Deal legacy of equality of opportunity for everyone and equalizing rights for everyone. We need to have scientific papers that hammer home different economic theories that turn out to be false, but enough people with enough dignity saying them can begin to change the way people think. And then also a very concerted effort to take over the judicial function in the United States. So there was that plan underway. And meanwhile, I would just say there was a generational issue. And that takes me back to the earlier what changed. What got us out of the Gilded Age? That's what I wanted to look at first. How did the country break the grip of the corrupt networks, not just this country, but Europe as well? And the very distressing answer I come up with is it took a massive series of calamities. And by that, I mean World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II. And that is, let's just go through it, two world wars, two genocides, use of the nuclear bomb, a pandemic much bigger than the current one, and a global economic meltdown even greater than 2008. That's the combination of calamities that generated enough of a sort of solidarity ethos as crisis always does, you know, a flood or a fire, suddenly everyone is helping their neighbors. They don't care what color they are or what political party they are. There's a kind of egalitarian ethos that rises to the surface. And my contention is that the elites of our two countries and others were enough affected by these calamities that they too were transfigured by the disaster egalitarian ethos, if you will, or the disaster survivor mentality, they started aging out by 1980. And so you have a cultural shift which allows for the money is the measure of social worth culture to start creeping back in. Then you have this plan, at least in the United States, by the people that I mentioned, which reinforces that cultural change. Then you have shortly thereafter, your story, 
the story that you've been telling so brilliantly, which is what has the impact been of the collapse of the Soviet Union as it took place? What has the impact been on not just the post-Soviet space and its political integrity, but Europe and the United States as well? So that kicked in in the 1990s to accelerate this sort of corrupting of the Western political economy as well as the political economy further to the East. It is quite easy to be gloomy, to think that we're stuck in this sort of nihilistic rut, that people essentially are Hobbesian. Life is pretty nasty, brutish, right? But you do actually finish up in your epilogue with a sort of reform blueprint. I mean, having anatomized all of this bad stuff in a wonderful way, you have some sort of positive suggestions for how we can get back on track. I just wonder if you briefly want to kind of run through what we can do, what we as society, as voters, as civic people, how we can fight back against this, against the Hydra, as you call it. Right. The plan that got us where we are now really was a blueprint. In other words, it had a very specific set of steps that if implemented properly would deliver the state of affairs that we're in now. And it's been quite successful. I didn't quite draft an equivalent blueprint, partly because my fundamental understanding is it's really going to take all of us. It really will take all of us. That in a way, the calamities that lie at the horizon if we don't address this, and if the 20th century is any model, is any instruction to us, are quite, I mean, they're unspeakable. And so somehow we have to figure out a way to generate the disaster survivor ethos without the disaster. Do you know what I mean? And in a disaster, every single person finds something to do. All of a sudden, all of your quirks and oddities and your odd talents that no one might have noticed, or you might not even have noticed, find a place. And that's why disasters are sometimes such exciting times to live through and uplifting times to live through. So I have a lot in there. So I really do encourage people to read that epilogue because you will find something for you, I think. But that being said, I think there does have to be a component of Correction. That means punishment. I mean, some of the authors of some of this behavior need to go to jail. A corporation does not have agency. Punishing a corporation will not deter crime. You have to punish the human beings who caused the corporation to commit those crimes. And so I do think that while we're talking about reconsidering our law enforcement in this country, obviously, but in other countries around the world, we need also to expand the personnel and material and guidance that's provided to that part of our law enforcement that focuses on corporate crime and corruption. Lock them up. Lock them up. Absolutely. Lock them up. You said it. Um, I think Not lock her up. Lock, lock them, them up. up. That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, I think that in that vein, a lot of our gentlemanly and gentlewomanly norms need to be translated into actual laws or at least, you know, executive orders and then not waived. They need to be expanded. So, 
practices like the revolving door or conflict of interest, cronyism, those need to be, the curbs on them need to be expanded to include, for example, immediate families. So if you're in office, your mother, father, brother, sisters, children also would be covered by conflict of interest statutes. So there are a variety of reforms that people who know how to draft legislation ought to be working on. But then there's a variety of things that we ordinary people can do, including get local, get involved local, both with our money and with our political power, because we can have some oversight over local institutions, be they banks or be they, you know, our local governments. And so that means that we can actually break up some of these monopolies ourselves by ceasing to purchase from them. So, Please buy, everybody knows, not from Amazon or these other large monopolies, buy it directly from Hearst or buy it from your local independent bookstore. Because then you can actually go into your store and apply some citizen's oversight. I think that we could all be demanding ethics pledges from our candidates of both parties, because I actually do believe that citizens of our countries across the political spectrum are really disgusted by this business model. So let's try actually to band together across our political divides to impose some discipline on our elites and quit letting our elites manipulate us with the identity divide. So I'll go walking around in a blue t-shirt or a red t-shirt and you know, you'll go walking around with a Tory t-shirt or a Labour or other t-shirt, and we actually forgive our own elites for violating our principles because we've been swept up in this identity conflict. That is how the corrupt networks defeat us. We need to join together in the egalitarian coalition and just rein them in a little bit. Yeah, 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 I completely agree with that. So, Sarah, we're, we're almost at the end. I mean, one question that is always asked in this podcast slot is what text or film or book or opera or cultural artifact or historical thing influenced the writing of Corruption in America? I mean, what, what is it? Is, is it a classical text? Is it a mosaic? Is it something Greek? Can you talk about a- anything which influenced you or helped your thought process? You know, one thing that significantly influenced it was the writing of a comparative mythologist named Joseph Campbell. I've been steeped in his books for years, and that's what really inspired me to include the mythological threads that I do. But secondly, in particular, He has a riff in a book that he wrote in 1949 called Hero with a Thousand Faces, speaking about a different ancient Greek tyrant, Minos. And he tells a bit about of the story of Minos. But then he has a two-page riff, which is the psychological characteristics of a tyrant in great detail. Every single item that he put down in those two pages describes Donald Trump (laughs) in perfect detail. And that's what made me realize we are living our mythology. 
we're living it. We've ignored some of this deep wisdom. And so we're being obliged to actually go through it. Uh, so I heartily recommend Joseph Campbell. So Sarah, to be clear, are you saying that Trump is Minos? Are we hearing it here first? Uh, I mean, at least, yeah. <laughs> okay. If he if he isn't the Minotaur, I mean, the Minotaur was the result of Minos's evil. Yeah, I mean, you can just stop it at yeah, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. Thank you to Sarah Chase for taking part in this episode, and you can buy Everybody Knows Now from Hearst Publishers' website. And for more, you can follow Hearst at at Hearst Publishers on Twitter. Sarah is at Sarah underscore Chase. That's cap S cap C. And I'm at Luke Harding 1968 on Twitter. And to get news on the latest Hearst books, subscribe to their email updates at hearstpublishers.com. That's Hearst Publishers is all one word, dot com. I'm Luke Harding. Thank you very much for listening. Listener.